Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. With Super Tuesday in the rearview mirror, the United States starts to pay attention to the coronavirus. The administration has had months to prepare for this, and it's unacceptable that people in my state and nationwide can't even get an answer as to whether or not they are infected. To put it simply, if someone at the White House or in this administration is actually in charge of responding to the coronavirus, it'd be news to anybody in my state. And women tell the Supreme Court that we are going back to the days of back alley abortions. Trump and his anti-choice cronies want to take us back when young women, young girls, low-income patients, and people of color died. But we're not going to let that happen. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, literally, the empire strikes back. A coalescing of Democratic Party elites combined with glowing corporate media coverage managed to lift the moribund campaign of Joe Biden to victory in eight states on Super Tuesday. And based on the coverage of Tuesday's presidential primaries, You might think that Biden had definitely won the most delegates and the popular vote, but that might not be so. Just as cable news coverage of the Iowa caucus was quick to declare Pete Buttigieg the winner and rob Bernie Sanders of the media boost of his victory in the popular vote, coverage of Super Tuesday robbed Sanders of the mass media narrative of winning the biggest prize of all, those delegates in California, and maybe winning the popular vote as well, as returns continue to trickle in. Chantel James watched the returns that night at a party with Bernie Sanders supporters in D.C. and filed this report. On Super Tuesday, with all eyes on key Democratic primaries in 14 states, people around D.C. gathered to track the results in real time. The Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America hosted their watch party to monitor the progress of candidate Bernie Sanders as polls closed around the country. They packed the bar, Penn Social, in Northwest D.C. with enthusiastic supporters who came to share analysis over drinks and food as the race unfolded before them. Curtis Hagens, one of the co-chairs of the Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America's working group, said the gathering would help organize volunteers for this pivotal presidential election. We put this together, one, to bring people together. I know this is a hard, kind of anxious time for a lot of people. Particularly, it just really is anxiety-inducing. So one is to have a community to be together, really share the night together. Uh, But the other reason is to mobilize people. Um, We get people coming to these who maybe haven't been on the ground doing canvassing or haven't ever made a phone call 
for uh, you know for any sort of electioneering purpose. Uh, so we like to try to involve people and give them opportunities to get in invested in and involved in on the groundwork. Great. Uh, so, what are your hopes for Super Tuesday? We can see from yesterday that the establishment has made the calculated decision to line up behind Biden against Sanders. This is not a surprise. I think we all saw this coming. We knew it would be a fight. Tonight is a realization that it's not going to be a cakewalk to the nomination, that it is going to be every call matters, every door knocked matters. Next up, the Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America will be focused on efforts in Maryland to galvanize voters for the April 28th Maryland primary. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. I'm Mr. Averam. I'm here from Pacifica Radio. I just wanted to catch a few people before I left to ask them why they came out. And can you say your name and where you're, where you're from? Judy Kelly, Burke, Virginia. I am 100% a supporter of Bernie Sanders. Okay, okay. and uh, what, what do you like about Bernie? His policies are right on target all the way down the line. And he has honesty, integrity, and he doesn't get paid by the big corporations that have bought out virtually every other politician in the country. Pretty much covers it, I guess, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> well, a major narrative of the Super Tuesday success of Joe Biden is how he dominated in support from black Southern voters. And even though Bernie Sanders continued to score big with young black voters, there just was not the turnout of young black voters in places like South Carolina. Joining me for this and other headlines is the prolific author and activist Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. So, Gerald, you're a son of the South and you teach in Texas. What insights can you give us about this black Southern vote for Joe Biden, as opposed to the more progressive candidacy of Bernie Sanders? Well, I think it's complicated. First of all, I think, unfortunately, that Senator Biden got a pass on one of his weakest and most significant liabilities. I'm speaking of what happened in June 2019 when at a presidential debate, Senator Kamala Harris hammered him on his position on busing, a tool used to, to desegregate schools, and it was Senator Harris who was upbraided for bringing out the truth with regard to Senator Biden. And you may have, have noticed that even though candidates oftentimes hammered Senator Biden on his position on foreign policy, particularly the disastrous 2003 invasion of Iraq, the question of racism did not rear its ugly head. I might also say, correspondingly, that now that Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, has dropped out, it's quite striking that with regard to criticizing Mayor Bloomberg in debates with regard to his rather uh, ugly sexism, it seemed that she was the only person on that stage full of men who found it necessary to bring that to the surface. And then there's the question of the leadership. There's no doubt that the endorsement of Congressman Jim Clyburn of the Congressional Black Caucus helped to sway votes in South Carolina. And you should also know that in terms of misleadership, keep in mind 
that Mayor Sylvester Turner of Houston, who happens to be a black American, endorsed Mayor Bloomberg, as did Congressman Bobby Rush of Chicago, a former leader of the Black Panther Party. And I think that these kinds of endorsements do have an impact on certain parts of the black American electorate. And with regard to Senator Biden, I think that, as Gore Vidal, the late writer, once said, there's a kind of United States of amnesia at play. He got a lot of props, that is to say, Vice President Biden, for being a vice presidential nominee under Barack Obama. But if you dig not that deeply, you'll find that one of the reasons that Barack Obama chose Joe Biden to be his running mate was because of Joe Biden's supposed appeal to Reagan Democrats, the conservative element in the Democratic Party electorate and constituency that oftentimes finds itself at odds with those black Americans who are now touting uh, Mr. Biden as their tribune. Mm. Uh, We should not forget that Senator Biden uh, had very close relations with Dixiecrats like Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and Jim Eastland of Mississippi. Recall that he was forced to retreat during the early stages of the presidential campaign from his praise of these particular men. And we should also not forget that when you're talking about the South, you're talking about the most conservative geography in the United States of America, some of the most conservative geography in the world. I mean, recall that it was only in 1991 that an avowed Klansman and Nazi, David Duke, got 55% of the Euro-American vote running for governor of Louisiana. In Mississippi, routinely, the GOP for over 50 to 60 years gets 9 out of 10 white votes a remarkable and stunning uh, coalition across class lines. And I might also say that the left needs to do some self-analysis and self-criticism. Recall that Senator Sanders was hammered after that 60 Minutes interview when he refused to denounce socialist Cuba. And I think that one of the problems is, is that because the U.S. left tends to unite with the U.S. right with regard to this uncritical embrace of 1776, it makes it very difficult to analyze any revolutionary process objectively when you're putting forward this immaculate conception idea of the founding United States. There were no flaws, even though it led to mass enslavement and genocide. And so we need to revisit that entire question. And I should also say that with regard to the demonizing of socialism, recall that a number of columnists, including Brett Stevens of the New York Times, David Brooks of the New York Times, they dropped their never-Trumper mask and put on a never-Bernie mask. And there was this demonizing of the word socialism, which caused Paul Krugman, the liberal New York Times columnist, to say that Sanders should drop that label. But Paul Krugman apparently has forgotten that the term liberal is demonized, too, particularly in the South. It's a staple of Republican Party campaign ads. And recall that that is one of the reasons why many liberals stopped calling themselves liberal and started calling themselves progressive. In any case, I think that there might be some doubt in the black constituency, given the conservatism in the United States, that a democratic socialist could be elected. Recall that our history has been rather star-crossed, shall we say, with regard to those in our community who have touted themselves as socialists. Recall what happened to 
Uh, Paul Robeson, recall what happened to the Black Panther Party, uh, which was subjected, uh, I don't think it's unfair to say, to state-sanctioned assassination. Recall December 4th, 1969 in Chicago, the killing of Mark Clark and uh, Fred Hampton. So in any case, I think there are many reasons why uh, Senator Sanders did not do as well as expected in South Carolina and in Texas and in the South generally. I wondered at some point if the whole issue of identity politics had won out over a policy analysis. This close association with Obama and the fact that people were even maybe being preached at in churches or maybe influenced by the barrage of ads by Mike Bloomberg, which I understand in some places started to feature very negative ads about Bernie Sanders if people weren't, and the fact that people are getting their news, uh, or I should say disinformation from corporate media, perhaps more in those markets than in other markets where they have more choice. I wondered if just based on you being in the South most of the time, if that could have an impact. Well, sure, that can have an impact. And it may be too early to have a funeral for the Sanders campaign. This race is still in the embryonic stage. There is a primary next week in Michigan where Senator Sanders did quite well in 2016. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, has endorsed Senator Sanders, uh, Chokwe Antoine Lumumba, and that may have some sway, just like the Senator Clyburn endorsement, excuse me, the Congressman Clyburn endorsement has sway in South Carolina. So uh, stay tuned. Exactly, exactly. Well, I have a lot more questions and and ideas about all of that, but we'll, we can't cover it all today. But I do want to go back to another part of the world that we've been talking about a lot, and that is the issue of Syria and Turkey. Mainly because, you know, I think at this point, Turkey has shot down at least three Syrian planes. It continues to wage this kind of undeclared war in Syria, having no legal claim or whatever to be in Syria doing anything. And I understand that Erdogan had a meeting with the Russian president, Putin, this week to come to some kind of meeting of the minds about this. And then he's also unleashing waves of refugees to flood the uh, border with Greece. So... Uh, what's your reaction to what's happening this week? Well, at least Turkish policy has been unmasked for what it is. That is to say, an open and naked alliance with religious zealots, uh, including those who have ties to al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State. I think it's also exposed the incoherence, if not two-faced policy, of the North Atlantic countries, uh, particularly France, and I would also say the United States, which has been egging on Mr. Erdogan with regard to his de facto alliance with these religious zealots, despite the fact that as we speak in West Africa, you have French troops who are battling the comrades of these religious zealots. They have requested more U.S. aid. Indeed, there's a real danger that this religious zealotry could spread from Mali and Burkina Faso in Niger into more stable countries like Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire and even Ghana. I don't think you can begin to understand this incoherence without understanding the hidden hand of Israel, 
which has significant influence on both Washington's policy and Paris's policy. And it's no secret that Israel would like to see continued chaos in Syria because Syria has been a burr under the saddle for Israel for oh so many decades. So in any case, uh, this is a real mess, and I'm waiting to see what transpired in the Putin-Erdogan meeting that has taken place just recently. Well, I should mention that news reports out of that meeting say that Putin and Erdogan reached a deal on a ceasefire in Idlib starting today on Friday, March 6th. So we'll have to see if that ceasefire holds and what that actually means on the ground. Well, also in that part of the world, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, isn't really happy about the fact that the International Criminal Court is uh, not looking away from potential war crimes in Afghanistan. Well, that's true. And I'm hoping that this investigation by the International Criminal Court will help to unveil the gross interference of the United States in Afghan internal politics, not only from 2001, when the Bush regime helped to overthrow the Taliban, but going back to the late 1970s, when you had a left-leaning regime in Kabul that was backed by Moscow, and one of the uh, central aspects of U.S. foreign policy under Jimmy Carter, and then following after that with Ronald Reagan, was once again supporting religious zealotry in order to destabilize that left-leaning regime. And now it's led to this negotiation, we are told, which will lead to a withdrawal, we are told, of thousands of U.S. troops, although it's apparent that the regime in Kabul does not agree with Trump's plan to negotiate further with the Taliban. And therefore, I don't think you'll see the situation resolving itself anytime soon. Okay, well, we will definitely continue to keep watch on what's happening in Afghanistan, but also with Turkians in Syria and also with what's happening with Israel because they have their own charges perhaps pending from the International Criminal Court. Here, here. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, on Wednesday, March 4th, the Supreme Court began hearing a case, June Medical Services versus Russo, involving a Louisiana law that prevents doctors from providing abortion services unless they have secured admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. Louisiana's law is identical to a restriction struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in a 2016 case, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt which was also litigated by the Center for Reproductive Rights. Since 1973, when the court established a constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, Louisiana has enacted 89 abortion restrictions, the most of any state. So outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday, a coalition of reproductive rights activists, lawmakers, doctors, and faith leaders rallied under the banner hashtag MyRightMyDecision. They were an audible competition with another group opposed to legal abortion that blared music and speeches in the direction of their rally. These voices are from the pro-choice rally, beginning with Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of California. Thank you, Renee. Good morning, everyone. We shouldn't have to be here once again, but we are. And I tell you one thing, I have to thank all of you so much for being here and for really making sure that this Supreme Court understands that we're not going to let anti-choice politicians continue their extreme and anti-science attack on abortion care. We're not going to let them do it. I have to thank our groups from Louisiana who are on the ground each and every single day fighting against this law. Thank you for your work and for your activism, Louisiana. And yes, I co-chaired the Pro-Choice Caucus with my sister, Congresswoman Diana DeGette. And you know what? We have the largest Pro-Choice Caucus ever in history. Ever in history. And so we are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that everyone has access to the care they need, regardless of income, race, or zip code. Now let me be clear. We already know that this law is unconstitutional. In 2016, the Supreme Court ruled that an identical law in Texas was unconstitutional. The only thing that has changed has been the makeup of this court. Louisiana's admitting privilege law has nothing to do with patient health and safety. Nothing to do with patient health and safety. It does not make patients safer. This year, this is yet another deceptive deploy, excuse me, ploy by the anti-choice politicians whose goal is to eliminate access to abortion care. But you're not going to let that happen, are you? No! Now, I remember the days of back alley abortions. We're not going to let them take us back there. Trump and his anti-choice cronies want to take us back when young women, young girls, low-income patients, and people of color died. But we're not going to let that happen. That's exactly who will be hit hardest by this law. Low-income patients, communities of color, who already face huge barriers to care. And so we're here to fight against these ongoing attacks on comprehensive reproductive health care. 
these abortion bans, and you know this, they're dangerous, they're wrong, and they're deadly. They're deadly. They have an outsized impact on the most vulnerable, especially for people of color and people who need evidence-based care the most. So we will not allow this administration to bully us into silence. Health care is a human right. It's a human right. And that includes reproductive health care. So today we're here to stand for doctors and their patients. Are you with us? Are we standing for science and evidence today? Are we standing for reproductive justice and freedom? And are we going to let the Supreme Court know that we're not going to let them take us back to the days of back alley abortions? Are we going to let them know that? Are we going to win? Thank you again. Protect abortion access. Thank you for being here. Let's hear it again for Congresswoman Barbara Lee. The next person I'm bringing up, really yeah. excited. She's been in the fight for doing this for so long, holding it down. She's been the chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus for 15 years. She's been making sure that Congress represents all of us. She's been holding it down for all the folks in Colorado. And she's the vice chair of the LGBT Equality Caucus. Please give a huge shout out to Congresswoman Diana DeGale. Good morning, everybody. But guess what we have? We have the majority of the American public. So I think we should say it again. Our voice is our power. Our voice is our power. Our voice is our power. No one in this country, not these judges behind me, not those lawmakers over in the Senate, has a right to tell women how they can use their body. Every, every woman, every family deserves the full range of health care. And guess what? Abortion is legal in this country and it needs to be available to everybody. Let's not make any mistake. The case that's going to be argued today is just an attempt to take access to abortion away from women who can afford it the least, and we won't let that happen. So, not only do we have a majority of the American public, we have the majority of the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time in the history of the United States. And if these judges do the wrong thing, my sister Barbara Lee, the co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus, and I are going to ask the House to do the right thing and to pass a law that will make Roe versus Wade the law of the land. 
we shouldn't have to get that far because the U.S. Supreme Court precedent says that this case should be, uh, that the Louisiana law should be reversed. It should be reversed because it's wrong, it's discriminatory, and it takes away women's rights. So let's focus on today. Let's not, what, what, what do I say? Let's activate. Let's get going. Let's work to make sure abortion is safe and legal for every single woman in the United States. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage Reverend Darcy So we are here today to fight for the very soul of our country. Beyond rights, beyond legislation, the June Medical Services versus Russo decision rests on whether we see women as human beings endowed with inherent dignity, worthy of making decisions about our lives, and able to access the health care that makes those decisions a reality. Because it must be said again and again, abortion care is health care. And one remaining abortion clinic in Louisiana will not be access to care. And make no mistake, this Supreme Court decision will affect not only abortion care, but reproductive care for all people. I stand here today pregnant. And two years ago, I suffered an ectopic pregnancy in Louisiana. I was not believed in my pain, thus I did not have timely care, my life was in danger, and I needed emergency surgery. So much of that lack of care was connected to a political system in which the legislature and courts for decades have prioritized slashing reproductive health care, targeting abortion care at the expense of the lives of women, particularly black women whose maternal mortality rate is four times that of white women. As the women of color leaders in the reproductive justice movement assert, this lack of regard for the decision-making and humanity of women of people of color, of trans folks, of poor folks, will continue unabated unless we resist. We resist at each court decision, each amendment to a bill, each conversation that denies the reality of our very bodies and our very minds. The fight will continue beyond today. And what each of you do in your communities each day, seeing women as endowed with worth and dignity, well, that's a holy affirmation, too, because to me, God the divine loves each of us as we are in our diversity. God the divine is with us when we stand up for the humanity of all creation. God the divine affirms our decisions about our sacred bodies and our sacred lives. And so today, I want us all to be blessed by divine in the days ahead. May we be blessed with resilience, with resistance, and most importantly, with love for our full, beautiful, brilliant humanity. Amen. All right, let's hear it! 
one of the things that um, I'm always really excited about is that we have young people in this world. Yeah. So I'm excited to bring um, a young person, a young storyteller from Louisiana. This is Kaylin Tanner with Advocates for Youth. Please welcome Kaylin to the stage. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. My name is Kaylin Tanner. I'm a student at Dillard University in New Orleans, and I'm here today with Advocates for Youth to uplift the voices of young people in Louisiana. I started doing this work when my reproductive rights were stripped from me due to the lack of confidentiality, misinformation, and implicit biases. I'm a black woman who experienced the unequal treatments and barriers that target young people from leading safe and healthy lives. We are all aware of the marginalized communities that are impacted by the barriers like the one we are fighting today. People who can't take off of work or don't have the funds to travel out of state to seek ownership of their own lives and futures. Young people who can't miss classes, like myself, or don't have supportive family members as they navigate the complicated landscape of abortion care in Louisiana alone. As a 20-year-old college student in Louisiana, the thought of such a personal decision of if and when I choose to start a family being left up to politicians is truly terrifying. Young people have the right to make decisions about our lives and our futures, especially when it comes to the decision of having a child. We don't need politicians and barriers standing in our way. Young people need access to the full spectrum of affordable reproductive care, including sex education, contraception, abortion, and prenatal and maternal care. Abortion is not a dirty word. <laughs> In fact, a recent Pew poll found that 70% of young people, the highest of any age group, believe abortion should be available in all or most cases. I stand alongside thousands of young people in Louisiana who are working to ensure their reproductive rights are honored and have a say in their futures. We are tired of having our rights tossed from one politician or political party to the next. The power to control our bodies needs to be placed in our hands. Young people are making decisions as collective of if it's even safe to invest in Louisiana and make it our home. We should be together, we should work together to reduce, not expand, the barriers young people face in assessing abortion. Barriers on top of barriers on top of barriers have been the deciding factors for our reproductive freedoms. Waiting periods and medically unnecessary ultrasounds hurt young people because they are the ones that can't afford that travel. And women like you do not that travel.
hotel stays and the more expensive procedures that come with delays. I'm here today for all young people in Louisiana to say you will not continue to take our choices away and you will not determine our futures. That was a student, Kaylin, from the organization Advocates for Youth, speaking at the My Right, My Decision rally outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. Before her was the Reverend Darcy Roke of Louisiana, Representative Diana DeGette of Colorado, and the segment began with Representative Barbara Lee of California. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Everybody over there! Get on up! Everybody right there! Get into it. Everybody run down. Get involved. Everybody get. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Put your, come on. Come on. Come on. Everybody over there. Get on up. Everybody right down. Get into it. Everybody over here. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, this week, Congress approved nearly $7.8 billion for agencies combating the novel coronavirus. The allocation is an increase over what was proposed by the Trump administration, which has also eliminated programs established by the Obama administration to address public health threats such as pandemics. According to the World Health Organization, there are 90,000 cases of this coronavirus in 70 countries and 3,000 deaths. Of those cases, there are 80 known cases in the United States and at least nine deaths. With me to discuss the virus in the United States and the response from Washington is Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and activist for universal health care, who is co-chair of the Green Party of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Well, since December, when this virus was announced and immediately combated in China, the Trump administration officials have addressed it as they seem to have addressed it as a political matter, as part of their ongoing economic war against China and not as a public health threat. So now, nearly three months later, with the stock market taking a nosedive and kind of going up and down and the first deaths from the virus. Uh, Right-wing pundits say that the virus is a plot to destroy the U.S. economy or Trump's re-election campaign, and hints of this same political agenda or idea was very much a part of this week's Senate hearing on the virus, with Republicans seeming to downplay the severity of it and Democrats emphasizing that more needs to be done. So first, give me your reaction to the emergence of the coronavirus and what is being done and not done 
here in the U.S. to be ready and combat it. Sure, thank you. Well, I mean, I'm sure your listeners are aware that this virus could have started in any country, but since it did start in China, unfortunately, the United States, because we are antagonistic towards China, have used this as an opportunity to demonize China instead of actually learning from the steps that they took to very effective steps to control it in their country. China has a governmental structure that allows them to actually do centralized planning and take action, take necessary steps when they need to. And so they set up fever hospitals where they could screen people. They were able to support people through isolation and use data very effectively to watch, you know, follow where the virus was going and take steps to prevent it. In the United States, we really should have been prepared long ago. It's almost like, you know, the horse is out of the barn and now we're trying to catch up with it. And so we don't have a strong public health infrastructure. We don't have a centralized communication network. And so we are behind the ball. And then the other problem that we have is that the leadership, as far as the government, of the task force and the kind of oversight of the coronavirus response here in the United States is a leadership that, as you said, is more concerned with ideology and with making sure that the markets are okay and how can people profit off of this than they are about really caring about human life. And if, if they did care about human life, what we would be seeing would have been an immediate response of public education to educate people about the facts of how the virus is spread, setting up materials, you know, hand sanitizer all around, uh, setting up clinics that are easily accessible for people, hotlines that work where people can call if they have questions or concerns. And, you know, the other problem that we have in the United States is that we don't have sufficient hospital beds and equipment if this virus does take off as we expect that it will, we're going to have to take make some moves quickly to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place to handle patients who need care. So li- listening to portions of the Senate hearing this week, I was struck by now, yeah, as you mentioned, like almost three months later after the virus emerged in China with the first known cases in the U.S. appearing, this country isn't prepared for large-scale testing or with supplies like masks or hospital equipment, you know, not to mention beds. So what, what is your, your understanding of where we stand with just being able to test people? Well, that's a big concern because we definitely don't have enough tests. And the way the criteria were initially set up of who could be tested, they were so restrictive that people who needed to be tested were not able to get tested. And so that's one of the kind of first mistakes that we've made in the United States. We don't have sufficient hospital beds for what people estimate could be the number of people who would need hospitalization. Now, listeners should know that the coronavirus is a type of a cold virus or respiratory virus that in most people, particularly younger people, is going to be a mild to moderate illness that they can recover from. But particularly for older people or people who have underlying health problems, compromised immune systems or 
cardiovascular disease or pulmonary disease, they have a much higher risk of having a more serious case of the disease and, and potentially fatal case. And so in the United States, my understanding is that we don't have sufficient ventilators which are machines that are used to assist people in their breathing when they get a very serious pneumonia and that we may not have enough people to actually work for the, you know manage those ventilators in the United States so the US should be prioritizing not just getting tests out there educating people you know taking steps to contain it when there's areas where there's a breakout but also, we need to be moving quickly to acquire the medical equipment that we need and bring in a workforce, hire more people who can manage that. So when I was listening to the, the Senate hearing this week, I was also struck by there was a lot of conversation about vaccines and drugs to perhaps treat it, but not enough a conversation around just these early steps that seem to be overlooked around just masks and equipment needed. So I want to play a clip and then I want to get you to respond to it. This is a ranking member, Senator Patty Murray of Washington State. Mr. Chairman, this is really a frightening time. At least six people in my home state have already died from the virus. I am told we should expect more. We expect the number of infections to continue to grow. And the people across my state, and I'm sure across the nation, are really scared. I'm hearing from people who are sick, who want to get tested, are not being told where to go. I'm hearing that even when people do get tested, and it's very few so far, the results are taking way longer to get back to them. The administration has had months to prepare for this, and it's unacceptable that people in my state and nationwide can't even get an answer as to whether or not they are infected. To put it simply, if someone at the White House or in this administration is actually in charge of responding to the coronavirus, it would be news to anybody in my state, and I've been on the phone with all of our local officials for days now. This is unacceptable. We are now seeing community transmission of this virus. Families deserve to know and fast when testing will actually be ready to scale up what they, the families, should be doing, and most importantly, what we are doing. So that's Senator Patty Murray, I believe, of Washington State at the Senate hearing earlier this week. So did you have any reaction to the hearing? I was able to watch some of it. And again, you know, exactly the things that you've raised, that what we see from the leadership and from the members of of Congress is that they don't have a grasp of the information. They they use the facts to kind of fit their ideological view as opposed to actually looking at the facts and using that information to create an effective response. So, you know, the Senator Lamar Alexander, who opened up the hearing, said, oh, China has like so many cases and we don't have that many here in the United States. And most of those happened overseas. What he doesn't understand is that we're just at the beginning. This has just come to the United States. And this particular virus is highly infectious. So it can spread pretty easily. And so without strong containment measures, testing people, providing people with information, making it possible for people to be quarantined if they've been exposed. You know, in the United States, we don't have paid sick leave 
for a lot of our workers. A lot of the workers can't afford, they're already living on the edge, paycheck to paycheck, and they can't afford to stay home from, you know, from work if they have a cold. So we should be immediately putting in place steps to provide unemployment benefits to any worker who, you know, is at risk or has signs of or symptoms or has been exposed to the virus so that they can stay home. Yeah, I wanted to comment on the point you raised about focusing on medications and vaccines. Of course, medications and vaccines are very profitable items. And in the United States, this is really an argument for why we should be using our public infrastructure to create these medications and these vaccines, because the United States is planning to invest a billion dollars into the production of a vaccine, which will take a year or more to create. But if we're putting that public money in, it should not be turned over to a private industry to then sell at a price that may not be affordable for people. This should be something that is offered free to everyone in the public. And the same thing with treatment. And this is something that China did. They basically provided coverage for any patient who contracted coronavirus. They didn't have to worry about whether they could afford the health care that they needed. Right. And when I've been watching this whole crisis kind of unfold, I couldn't help but think about, you know, Bernie Sanders out on the stump for Medicare for all. And the way the campaign and the politics are covered, it's almost as if no pundit wanted to actually make that connection either. (laughs) Because um, I actually heard, I think it was Thomas Friedman of the New York Times saying it in an interview that he thought that the coronavirus could could maybe stop Bernie. This is part of this whole stop Bernie campaign. And basically say, well, you know, uh, because people will want a leader like Michael Bloomberg at that point or someone who's a known leader to deal with a crisis without connecting to the fact that those of us in the public listening to this debate will say, well, no, this person over here is saying that I should be able to get some health care for free, that health care is a human right and that I shouldn't have to have three thousand dollars to get a coronavirus test, you know. Well, I mean, this is. Where And this is something that we've been talking about, people who are proponents of a universal publicly funded healthcare system as opposed to what we have right now, which is a very complicated for-profit system that's very unequal. We've been warning that because we don't have a universal system, we are at risk for an epidemic or a pandemic. And so now we're seeing that actually happening where, you know, tens of millions of people in the United States don't have health insurance. So why aren't we setting up clinics at our health departments where people can go and get care and get tested if they're concerned? We have tens of millions of people who have health care insurance, but like the person in Florida who went to get a test and then was stuck with a very high bill, they have so many financial barriers, even with health insurance, to getting the care that they need. And so, we are not in a good situation. The World Health Organization has you know, been saying for a while that the world is not prepared for a pandemic. And if you look at all of the wealthy countries, most of them have universal health care systems. The United States does not. So that really puts us at a much higher risk than the other countries. We can anticipate that you know, we'll have a, much more of a spread of this disease here and we can have a higher mortality rate if we're not able to provide the care that people need when they get sick. 
as a doctor, people have probably been asking you this, but you know, I don't think that we can hear it too much. So what are some things that we can do? I mean, many of us do not have insurance or we have poor insurance. Right. And so I think one of the things that every person should be doing is pressuring their local governments, their local health departments to take steps to set up screening areas to make sure they're getting tests to be doing public education. That's something that we can all be doing in our community. But personally, the way that this virus spreads is through droplets. So if a person sneezes or coughs or you know spits when they speak and droplets come out on, of their nose or mouth, onto a surface, then that droplet can have the live virus in it and be contagious. And that virus in those droplets can stay alive for a week or so on a surface. So we should be making sure that we're cleaning surfaces regularly in our homes and at work with a disinfectant. The first signs of coronavirus are fever and cough. So if you develop a fever or cough, you should stay home. If you're able to get in touch with your Physician, if you have one, get in touch with your health department or, you know, self-quarantine if you have to. Make sure that you're, like any cold, making sure you're drinking plenty of fluids and trying to eat healthy foods and rest. Vitamin C is also helpful in boosting the immune system. So taking vitamin C is a good idea. And the other thing that if you do have symptoms, a cough or, or a fever, you should wear a face mask if you can just to prevent. I mean, it could even be a bandana or something, just something to prevent if you cough to stop the droplets from coming out of your mouth. And then ways that we can protect ourselves, it's just basic washing your hands frequently. Try not to touch surfaces when you're out in public. Definitely don't touch your mouth or your nose or your eyes. Wash your hands before you eat. If you sneeze or cough, wash your hands after that. You know, just using really good hygiene right now is important. Yeah, I've even heard people say, you know, avoid shaking hands or just, you know, like um, maybe give somebody a, you know, fist bump. (laughs) Now, to switch to a totally different subject, you are part of the Embassy Protectors Collective, uh, which occupied the Venezuela embassy at the invitation of the Venezuela government. And I know that, you know, we covered the trial last month. And I know that right now you're you're waiting on basically some response from the court. You want to give us an update about that case? Yeah, thank you for asking. So as your listeners may know, the trial in February ended in a mistrial. The jury was not able to unanimously uh, decide to find us innocent as we are or to convict us. And so the judge declared a mistrial. And so now we're waiting to find out whether the government will push for a retrial. Our lawyers are talking with the government lawyers about reaching some sort of an agreement that wouldn't require going to trial. And so um, we're kind of in a holding pattern right now and expect that maybe in the next month uh, we'll have a sense of what the outcome of this is going to be. But we really appreciate all the support that people have given us through this so far. Well, I I guess we've run out of time, but I want to thank you. Uh, Dr. Margaret Flowers has been my guest. She's a pediatrician and activist for universal health care who is co-chair of the Green Party of the United States. Thank you for joining me today, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Esther.
and Dr. Margaret Flowers will have the last word on today's show. There are a few news updates I want to give you. Those 10,000 Safeway grocery store workers in the DMV uh, voted to approve their contract, and so they won't be going out on strike. This is an update on, of a story we brought you a few weeks ago. And in culture and media, uh, Linda Sarsour, the activist, is hosting a, a book party tonight. That's Friday, March 6th at Busboys and Poets on 14th Street from 6.30 to 8.30. And three more events on March 6th, La Raza, is holding a benefit concert for migrants in Tijuana, and that's at Spacey Cloud Lounge, D.C. Also, Ice Out of DMV, a teach-in and art build, hosted by Sanctuary DMV and Lumpy Space Collective. That's from 7 to 10 p.m. at 1926 38th Street Northwest. And also, on March 6th in the evening, the opening reception for Art of Palestinian Women hosted by the Museum of the Palestinian People. And that's from 7 to 9 p.m. at 1918th Street, Northwest. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain. Go to the website. We work hard on it. So we'd like you to go there and check out the shows and information about our show. And that's onthegroundshow.org. And if you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. The music we play this hour included Boosie, Independent, James Brown, Get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved. Our show theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.